Women Today. First of my good afternoon and thanks very much to Stu and Catherine for Talking Heads. They'll be back with you at midday on Monday. It's uh, just gone six minutes past two. I'm Christy Dehaven and for the next hour, you are very welcome to join myself and my studio guest on the Conister Rock today, uh, where we'll be hearing the music and memories of the island's own star man, Howard Parkin. Hailing from Onken and with his sights firmly set on the stars from a young age, Howard's life seems to lead him on adventures at every turn, from live links with astronauts on the International Space Station to being the main driver behind the island's gaining dark skies discovery status to the time when, in an attempt to have a fairly laid-back family holiday, he actually found himself caught up in the morning of notorious political figure Fidel Castro. But more of that later on. Firstly, I wonder, Howard Parkin, how much of your life do you think you've spent looking up? Too much. Far too much. <laughs> it's something I just love doing, and it's not just looking at the sky and the, the astronomy side of it, but I just love the nature, and I love the sky and the, the stars and the planets and all that sort of stuff. And... Uh, it's just a passion that grew from a very early age and uh, it's it stayed with me. There was a bit of a break when I went to college and met my wife and all the rest, but then I came back to it about 40 years ago and I've been teaching at the college ever since and I'm now very fortunate I get to talk about my hobby all over the place. And uh, it's it's more than a hobby really to me. It, it sounds like it's, it's a sort of life choice really, isn't it, it? It is really. And since I officially retired from my job as a civil servant at Manx National Heritage with the government, I set up my own company and... Uh, it doesn't make a huge amount of money for me, but I get the great opportunity to give talks, give lectures. One of the best things I love doing is talking to children, talking mm-hmm. to school children. They're like sponges. They mop up every word you say, and then they come back with the most profound questions. Can, not, you, can you think well, of any now that any oh, kids have asked you? Oh, the, 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 you get off the top of my head. Uh, I remember one chap in particular said to me, how did the universe begin? This is a young child of about nine. How did the universe begin? Then he came back with, well... How did it all begin and what caused it? And then in the end, he says, well, who caused it? And at which point I just said, you need to go and ask your vicar that question. <laughs> Fantastic. But I always remember he just kept coming back again and again and again until in the end I said, look, I, I'm not going to get into religion and all that sort of stuff. So I said, go and ask your local vicar. It is, but it is a vast topic. It oh, is absolutely. just huge. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of you got interested in it as a child. Mm-hmm. Can you remember what it was in particular that sparked your interest? Vividly. Oh. Vividly. I lived in Liverpool as a child, and in those sort of days, back in the early 60s, 1961, April 61, that's how specific I can be. I can even give you the date, it was the 14th of April. And we were playing outside in the road, as kids did in those days. And we were playing football in this road, and my mum came inside, came outside and said, boys, boys, come in, come in, I want you to see this on television. And we had an old black and white TV in the corner of the lounge. And on that TV was a man walking through the streets of Moscow, through Red Square, he was being fated by millions. It was Yuri Gagarin. Uh-huh. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, he's been in space. How, how incredibly cool is that? We didn't use that word then. But I remember that vividly was the moment when I thought, wow. And my interest in space and astronomy is that way around. I was interested in space flight first, and then astronomy grew on the back of that. Uh-huh. Whereas a lot of people I know, fellow members of the society and other people I meet, um, are all astronomers who got interested in space. The two are in- intertwined inexorably, but um, obviously that was my, my start and it grew from there. And you mentioned your mother there, but also your father, I think, used yes. to take you to, what, to look for meteors and meteor well, spotting. wind on a few years to 1966, the best meteor shower ever was forecast to hit 
the earth. It sounds terrible, that, but a meteorite shower, a meteor seen in the sky. And um, this was predicted on November the 15th, I think it was, 1966. And my dad, bless him, the best time to see meteors is after midnight. <laughs> Again, I still lived in Liverpool at the time, and there was a big field in Egbeth called Holt's Field. It's still there, I believe. And my dad took me up there at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was a school night as well, to see if we could see any meteors. We saw three. Very faint, Aww. very insignificant. <laughs> Next morning, over Arizona in the United States, the recording was something like 20,000 in an hour. Oh, They no. got it right, but the position was just slightly wrong. Yeah. But that was it. I was completely hooked. But you, must have, since. you must have seen some incredible meter showers since. Oh, since then. I mean, actually, one of the best meter showers I saw was 18 months ago. The Persid meteor shower, visible from the Isle of Man in mm -hmm. August 2016, 16, yes, 2016, occurred. Beautiful clear night, no moon, and I just sat in my back garden and I saw about 40 or 50 metres in about 20 minutes. It was fantastic. That's Gosh. the best I've ever seen. You do get to see metres pretty well all the time. I mean, I've just been um, on a cruise and I've just been um, stargazing on the deck and we kept seeing meteors and there aren't meant to be any meteors around at the moment, but you always see meteors. But just we have a rule. We do have a rule on meteors. If one person sees a meteor, it doesn't count. Two people have got to see the same meteor. I, that's quite sensible because yeah, it'd be very easy to just say, oh, I just saw one. Yeah, absolutely. So two people have got to see it, which is okay when there's a gang of you doing it. Yeah. You're looking the same direction. But then, oh, I just saw one. Oh, you didn't. It doesn't count. Does and the magic them. ever fade? No, not to me. Yeah. Not to me. And I will stand there and look at something. I mean, the other night, as I said, I was out stargazing and we were looking at the Andromeda Galaxy. And I could talk about the Andromeda Galaxy for the whole interview. But the Andromeda Galaxy is just about visible with the naked eye. And if you get a good dark location, you can see it. You're looking 2.5 million light years away. Gosh, and that is crazy. that is a local galaxy. That is like Douglas's to Onken on the scale of the world. It's a local galaxy. It's a next door neighbour at 2.5 million light years away. You can't really fathom that. I mean, no. that, that just makes you, your brain want to explode. <laughs> That's why you, you say, does it still fascinate me? It does. And you, you come up with these little anecdotal stuff like this. I mean, how many stars are there in the, in the sky? As many stars as there are grains of sand on the Earth. Wow. And the thing is, so much of it is still undiscovered at the end oh, of the yes. day, isn't it? There's so I mean, much more. we're making more. discoveries all the time. Even the Hubble Space Telescope, which is another thing I'm passionate about. The Hubble Space Telescope is an amazing piece of machinery. And um, the things that's discovering all the time. Only the other day it found a galaxy that's only 500 million years since the Big Bang occurred. Only. The Big Bang <laughs> happened 13.7 billion years ago. And this galaxy, they reckon, uh, is, is only 500 million years after the Big Bang. You work on a completely different time scale to normal people. How would you really do? But what that must feel very peculiar, though, the idea that the majority, really, of what we're looking at doesn't actually exist anymore, no, does it? quite possibly doesn't. I mean, all the stars we see are... We use light years. We use the term light year. That, that How far light travels in one year is a unit of distance. 1,800 miles a second multiplied by 60 by 60 by 24 by 365. It's a big number, so we just say one light year. Nearest star, four and a half light years away. All the other stars are varying in their distance and the galaxies even further. I mean, the, the wonderful example I can give you is the constellation Orion. And most people know what Orion looks like. It's three stars in a line, Orion's belt. Top left-hand star of that, Betelgeuse, a red star, is about 500 light years away. Bottom right, Rigel, is about 900 light years away. Wow. So Rigel's light left when Peel Castle was a garrison. No. And Betelgeuse's light left when Fort, uh, Russian Abbey was still a monastery before it got dissolved by Henry VIII and everything else. See, how can somebody not be excited yeah, by this? Exactly. You just you learn these things as yeah. you go through it. And the more I talk to people, the more I learn little things like this. And you just keep 
I absorb it like a sponge, I suppose, and it's nice to give it back out to people because most people are fascinated. And uh, yes, like any subject, you can get really obsessive about it. But what I've always tried to do, and what I particularly like doing, is talking to people about it, lecturing it, educating people, going talks to schools or interested groups, wherever they may be. And that's what I get a kick out of. You must be faced by an awful lot of just open-jawed, kind of wide-eyed oh, people when you talk Sometimes about it. Sometimes you get that. But, you know, the other week I met a gentleman and he's just emailed me, actually. I'm absolutely delighted he just emailed me because I gave a lecture and this guy was in the audience. It was about Mars. And this guy was in the audience and he came up to me after. He was about 80 and his name was George. And he said to me, oh, thank you so much for giving that lecture. That's just how I remember it. And I said, how do you mean? He was one of the scientists in the control room when the first ever spacecraft flew past Mars. And I'm, I was in awe of him. My jaw dropped because I'm saying to him, don't thank me. Thank you. You're the sort of guys that made this sort of thing happen. And he says, yes, after it happened, NASA gave us all a photograph of Mars that we'd helped take. It only took 22 photographs as Mariner 4 went past Mars in 1964. But he was there. How incredible was that? What that the guys is, that made it happen. That is incredible. And we'll talk much more about all of this and space exploration and all sorts of things over the course of the next hour. Uh, if you do have any questions for Howard, we'd love to hear from you. One double six, one double seven, or you can email studio at manxradio.com. Uh, let's get some music in, Howard. What is your first choice and why? My first choice is my favourite band of all time. I've always loved this particular band. Um, the Moody Blues it is. And I remember, this is showing my age now, I remember I bought the album the, the, the second album on the threshold of a dream uh, on the day they brought internment in in Northern Ireland in 1966 I think it was 67 but my favourite track of theirs always will be and I'll never tire of hearing it is Nights in White Satin Nights in White Satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you Tell me thoughts they cannot defend. Just what you want to be, you will be in the end. And I love you. drum what a tune 
that is Moody Blues, of course, and Nights in White Saturn. It is the first song choice of my guest this afternoon, Howard Parkin. We're already having a thrilling time on Conister Rock, uh, hearing all about what is above us, and which there's an awful lot, to be indeed. fair. Uh, speaking of, it's a really important time at the minute on the island, isn't it? It is indeed. Astromanx, I think, was uh, instrumental in the island getting the dark sky status. Is it, that right? It was indeed. I'm delighted to say it was. But to be fair, the initial drive to do that was through Manx National Heritage. The government realised in 2012 that the island had an asset. It was not It was underutilised. Niche tourism is what it's all about. And one of the things they identified was dark skies astronomy destination. That's what they called it. I was working for m at the time and the director said to me, can we do something about this? I inquired, I looked into it, and as a consequence, we had seven sites given Dark Sky Discovery status, which is an organisation in, in, in Edinburgh at the Royal Observatory up there. So these seven sites were designated as Dark Sky sites, which gave us, there was none at all in the, in the Irish Sea, and there was lots, well, not lots, but about a dozen or so in the UK. So I thought, right, well, if we're going to have one, we might as well have seven. So we applied and got for, for seven. As a consequence, people got in touch with us and said, I, I, by this time I had then retired, I, I left the government, and people said to me, why don't we have some more sites designated? So we got in touch with the Department of Tourism at the time, and uh, we advertised, anybody got a site they think is appropriate, let us know. I was inundated, probably mm-hmm. about 40 or 50 sites. There are strict rules and regulations as to what deems to be appropriate for a dark sky discovery site. Uh, so a few got eliminated because of ownership worries or they hadn't got clear sight lines or they weren't accessible to the public or whatever. But I submitted application for a further 19, expecting to get about a dozen, if, if that. I got all 19. <laughs> so we've ended up with 26 dark sky discovery sites deliberately. And I made a conscious effort to do this, to scatter them all over the island. I'm not blind to the fact that people in Liverpool or Manchester, wherever they live, can get in their car and drive up to somewhere where it's dark and go stargazing till five o'clock in the morning and then come home. But in the Isle of Man, you can come here. You can go on the railways. You can go for a walk in the countryside. You can go to the Gaiety. You can go on the Heritage Railways. And at night time, if that's your interest, you can go to a dark sky site and see the skies. OK, it's cloudy. It's cloudy everywhere in Northern Europe. and We're in Northern Europe. Like it or not, we're in Northern Europe. And we all have the same problem. But when we get a clear night, it's so special. And that's what I love talking about. And that's why we did it. Oh, Howard, it's such a joy speaking to you about all of this. And we will be talking much more to Howard over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. But it's just coming up to 20 minutes past two now. The Nation's Station, Match Radio. Women Today. Uh, you are listening to Women Today with myself, Christy Dehaven, and my guest, who is Howard Parkin. We are on the Conister Rock. Uh, we're talking about music and memories and uh, the skies above, and it is fascinating. And we were just talking before the break, Howard, about the fact that the island has a number of dark skies discovery sites. Is it 26 26, yeah. 26 19 dis- plus 7. That is crackers. And you were giving a talk about this last night, Indeed weren't it was, you? Was, yes. It was a part of the Year of Our Island. Yes, as part of the Year of Our Island celebrations, one of the things they wanted to do was give people the opportunity to visit the observatory, which is not the easiest place to get to because we've got access problems. So we had a very carefully, or they, uh, the department, uh, the cabinet office who were organising this, had a very carefully planned management scheme to do it, and it worked brilliantly. We had about 100 people up there over the course of the two nights. Because it sold out quickly as well. sold out very quickly and we could have had more up there and we could have done it another night but uh, frankly <laughs> I need a night off. <laughs> but uh, basically what I was talking about, we were showing them the premises and everything else and on the first night we did see a bit of the sky, it was clear but uh, the second night sadly was cloudy. But we showed them the telescope but I gave a talk on dark skies, why the island's dark skies are so good 
And then it led into why we need to do something about protecting the night skies. Because there's so much light out there these days, light pollution is becoming a major problem. And it's something that I feel passionate about. And it's not just about astronomy. There is clear evidence. You only got to look in the scientific papers. Nature magazine in 2017 in August talked about the... The, the Arcadian rhythm of animals is being affected. Trees are bursting into bloom early. Pollination is becoming a problem. And there's a whole host of different stories. Yes, astronomy is important for us as, as people. The, the skies are important for us to see. I have a lovely expression, which is, let's give our children back the magic of the night, which mm -hmm. is that of the stars. We don't realise how good we've got the skies in the Isle of Man. I can walk along. I used to work at the museum as I said earlier I used to walk along the promenade sometimes I'd feel fit and want to walk home to Onkin it's a long way I had to have a drink at the terminus <laughs> on the way but uh, I would walk along Douglas Promenade and there's no moon around even with the lights of the prom above me I could still see the Milky Way you don't see the Milky Way from a light polluted sky mm. we are blessed and I want to shout it from the rooftops that is the Milky Way there's a lovely story I can give you we did the the, um, the pie in the sky at the top of Snaefell for the Astronomical Society yes. we've done loads of them now but about a year 18 months ago we are up the top of Snaefell it was one of these pristine crystal clear nights we don't get many of them but when we get them they're spectacular which makes them all the more special and this woman came up to me and said it's a pity about that cloud and I said <laughs> that cloud my dear is the Milky Way Amazing. Never, she says, and it, it was the Milky Way. And there's a famous story in Los Angeles. A few months ago now, they had a power outage in, in Los Angeles. And the, they all dialed 911. What's that big white glow in the sky? It was the Milky Way. <laughs> they were scared, weren't they, because they'd yeah. not seen it before. And it's interesting because what you're talking about, I suppose, at the end of the day is also, you know, you're talking about wildlife, how it affects mm -hmm. that as well. I'm assuming you believe that we also have a responsibility to the planet itself. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's that sort of pale pale blue dot, Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. Well, since 1968, when we first took a picture of the Earth from space, as an astronomer, the most beautiful thing you'll see in the night sky is the planet Saturn. That was until 1968 when we saw the Earth from space. And at that point, environmental consciousness became a major issue. And it has been for the last 40, 50 years, because when we see the Earth from space, this beautiful pale blue dot that Carl Sagan talked about from the Voyager spacecraft or to the Apollo astronauts in the 60s and 70s. And you look at the Earth, there's no borders, there's no difference of opinions, there's no different coloured people or gender or anything else. We're all one people living on the same place and we've got to look after it. And putting lights up that go into the sky is a waste of energy, a waste of resources. And frankly, it's damned annoying, if you excuse my French. So it's not just, we're not just talking about uh, the general use of electricity, because obviously there are more and more and more and more people on the planet, mm -hmm. probably far too many, and that presents all manner of other issues Another as well. Story, yes. A different story, exactly. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, people do need light. So what actually can we do about it? I have it? no problem with light. I'm glad you mentioned that because I made this point quite forcefully last night. I have no problem, and none of my colleagues have any problem with lighting that is required, is appropriate, and is designed correctly. What we have problems with is lights that are going straight up into the sky. Okay. No benefit to mankind whatsoever. Fair enough, airport runway lights, essential, got to have them, no argument. But don't leave lights on all night. Mm -hmm. Turn them off when you don't need them. Have what we call full cut-off lighting installed, which will save money because you need less lights to light up a, a bigger area because you don't have all the light going into the sky. They're less, lose less power. They're saving the planet. They're helping towards uh, solving the problems of climate change, etc. It's win-win-win all the way. And as a huge bonus for us astronomers, we get to show the children the night sky, which we saw as children, but people are seeing less and less, especially in the big cities across.
Absolutely. Now, uh, one of the things that we ask our guests when they come onto the Connors to Rock is uh, we want to know what have been some of the most momentous occasions in their lives for them. Now, you know, you have had some incredible moments in your life. Yeah. And I would have thought with all of this sort of awe-inspiring talk of, of the universe, it may have been something star-related. But you are a family man at the end definitely, of the day, aren't definitely. you, Howard? My family is the most important thing to me. And uh, I know that question was coming. And uh, I certainly, <laughs> no hesitation, my wife, my children and my grandchildren are the most important things to us. And, um, you know, I, I'm honoured and privileged to have such a lovely, loving family. And uh, I value them dearly. And your next song reflects that very Absolutely. much, doesn't it? Because when my wife and I were at college together, uh, of course, she lived in Manchester. I was in the Isle of Man by this time. So every holiday we, we parted and then came back together. So my next song is When Will I See You Again by The Three Degrees. And a beautiful one it is. Thanks very much, Howard. Precious moments. We are talking about precious moments with Howard Parkin. You're a bit of a romantic at heart, really, aren't you? <laughs> I suppose I am, really. <laughs> it's nothing wrong with that, though. It's a good no, thing. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the things that I bet you get asked all the time, considering the amount of time you've been looking into this, is there life outside of this planet then, Howard? I want to know. Yes. What? Categorically, yes. Okay, now I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> what on earth do you mean there can't possibly well, be? If we look at the the statistics of how big the universe is. I've already mentioned about there's a grain of sand on the earth for every star in the sky. Um, I've got to put a bit of detail to this. We used to think the earth was the only planet in the in the universe. Well, not the only planet. There's other planets, but the earth was the centre of the universe. Uh -huh. Then we realised with Copernicus in 1543 that the sun was at the centre of what we thought the universe and the earth was just a planet going round it. Now we've found planets round thousands of stars. There's millions of planets out there. And there is a wonderful theory uh, called the cosmic anthropic principle which basically tells us that stars at the time of the big bang were born and then they died 
Then another generation of stars were born and they died. But when they die, they go through a process, some of them called a supernova explosion, and they scatter into the cosmos various elements and materials. Then along comes the third generation of stars, of which our sun is a third generation star. And some of that material from the earlier supernova eruptions is with inside our bodies. We are made of stardust. It's oh. a wonderful concept that we are made of stardust. And when you consider how big the universe is and look at the statistics, we can do the Drake equation, which is a it's, it's lost favor a bit recently because the Drake equation takes everything about how many stars are there, how many are in the right place, how many have got life it develops on them. The last factor is actually the lifetime of the communicative state. How long have we been communicating as a species? A hundred years since radio waves have started being mm. used. And now we're starting to use far more fiber optics. We're not broadcasting as much as we used to. And if we were to, heaven forbid, blow ourselves up and we disappear, the lifetime of our communicative state as a fraction of the origin of the, the age of the universe is in tiny. Fascinating. So there could, and there almost definitely, I, I would say there is life elsewhere, in, but it's so far away, it yeah. can no more reach us than we can reach them. I don't believe in UFOs. They're no more likely to come to us than we can get to them. But I do believe life exists somewhere else in the universe. Well, there's something quite arrogant about thinking there isn't really, isn't there? Absolutely. That's the word I would use, arrogant. It's it's arrogant of us to think that we're the only ones. But I know some people think, well, we're tiny. We're just tiny little creatures on this planet. We're not. We're massive. We're massive because the substance of the stars is within us. Neil deGrasse Tyson made this wonderful speech about uh, the guts of stars being scattered out into the universe. And people think we're small. But his exact quote was, I don't think we're small. I think we're big because we've got stars in us. Oh, Peter, do you know what? In the background, I found a little piece of music. I think you'll appreciate this. Hold on. Oh, Matthew Southern Comfort. Absolutely. Are you ready for for this bit? Couldn't say it better myself. A bit of Woodstock feeling. Absolutely. You hadn't chosen it, but it sort of no, makes sense. It's certainly well worth having yeah. that one. That's and on ve- the list. Very expertly faded in there, Christy D. Anyway. Very good. <laughs> I'm most impressed. Uh, right. We're going to talk about your next song now. Oh, right. uh, some of them have to have reasons, but this is just a piece of music that you absolutely love. Yeah. Tell us what it is and why you love it so much. I think it's my era. I think it's my era in the 60s and 70s and your know, child of the 60s and all this sort of stuff and the, the, the rock revolution and swinging 60s and I know people are going to say they're not 60s they're more 70s but my next track is Hotel California by the Eagles what a great one too She stood in the door 
it might be a lovely place. It's not as lovely as the Isle of Man, though, is it, Howard? No, absolutely not. No, definitely not. Uh, so that was uh, our next choice of music from Howard Parkin, who we're on the Connors to Rock with today. Uh, I, I should really ask you, did you watch endless episodes of Sky at Night? All the time. Still do. Yeah. Great programme. Actually, longer than the Space Age. I've just been giving you a lecture on the uh, history of the Space Age, the exploration of the solar system, it's called, and it's one of the few things the British can claim. The longest-running TV programme started before the first satellite ever even went into space. <gasps> My in word. In June 1957, Star Sky at Night began. Sputnik was launched in October 57. I did not know that. There you go. And it is still going. What do you think of the new presenters? Because they, they're not quite Patrick Moore, but are no, they good enough? No, nothing would ever replace Patrick Moore. And no. what we were worried about when, the, when Patrick died, sadly, and he was a great friend of the island, incidentally. He came here a number of times. He was the patron of our society, and he was such a lovely bloke. I always remember when he rang me up one time about something. We were doing the stamps for the post office and he rang me up and my daughter, who was about 15 at the time, said, Dad, 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 is Patrick Moore on the phone for you? <laughs> it was a wonderful moment. But he was such a gentleman. Since he's passed away, of course, uh, others have gone to the, come to the fore and done it. And only a few days ago, I was on, the, on a ship with Pete Lawrence. Pete Lawrence, what a lovely man he is. And he only got into the sky at night because he lived near Patrick and Celsius and Patrick was getting that he couldn't get out and about. So... Pete was an astronomer as well, got to know Patrick, and he started helping Patrick. And in the end, um, Pete now is one of the presenters on the Sky at Night, and he's just carried on in the same ilk. It's just great. And the whole thing is just enthusiasm, you know, and it, it's on every every thir 13 times a year to coincide with the lunar months, not the calendar months. That's why little stupid things like that. But I can't stress enough what a gentleman he was and what a lovely bloke. And when he came here, so he came a number of times, he always had time for people he'd met and people he knew and, and children. He, he inspired so many children, probably including me, probably when I look back to 1966, it was his programme that inspired me. Well, speaking of, uh, of the youth, we will be talking a little bit more about that, in fact, after the break and also uh, finding out about a very special event happening in the skies next week. The Nation Station. Radio. Women Today. You are listening to Women Today. I've confused Howard now. Did we just, just because we've just gone out, did you say we are doing this next song or are we going to go straight to the other one that people won't know? Do He's the other, just, do, do the do first the other one. one that people won't know. Yeah. Okay. Right. Anyway, so sorry, that was just something I should have talked to him about on it off air, but I forgot. Uh, right. So we just had a message in. I'm going to put this to you, Howard. I'm intrigued to know what you're going to say. Someone messaged in and said, Space does not exist. The earth is flat. Wake up. <laughs> do you know what that's about? I do. The Flat Earth Society, no doubt. Because when you look at the Earth, we always talk about observational evidence. Observational evidence shows the stars move around the Earth. Therefore, the Earth is still and the stars are around the Earth. And the observational evidence lasted for 1,800 years before Copernicus changed all that in 1543. But the Flat Earth Society still exists and... Hello, whoever you are. Uh, nice to hear from you. But I have to tell you a wonderful little thing I found out not long ago. Please have a look at the Flat Earth Society website. They justifiably state on that website that they've got members all over the globe. Oh, the globe as in the sphere. Globe as in sphere. So Ooh. how can they have members all over the globe if might, it's flat? Might want to change that wording. Just I probably have already, but I believe that is 100% true. <laughs> I also have a message in uh, from Tommy who says, have you ever heard the Stephen Hawking quote, the surest sign that intelligent life exists elsewhere is that they've never tried to contact us. <laughs> would you, do you blame them? <laughs> I like yes, it's that. A, it's a great quote by Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking, of course, is one of these scientists whose brain is just on a different level to everyone else's and the stuff he comes up with. I'll give you another one. The most comprehensible thing in the universe is that it is incomprehensible. 
brilliant. From Einstein. Yeah, that is brilliant. So we talked a little bit about uh, how you were inspired as a child um, by Yuri Gagarin, also by Patrick Morsky. Now, how important is it then that the youth are um, sort of encouraged to be looking at the skies? It's absolutely vital, not just in astronomy, but any in science. I'm, I admit I'm more into science than art, and there's nothing wrong with that. People are artists, people are scientists. But children are like sponges. I mentioned this before. They mop up everything you tell them. And sometimes if you tell them the wrong things, obviously you've got to make sure they, they, they understand that isn't correct. But I do lots of lectures and lots of talks, as I've mentioned before. And when you give a talk to an adult group, they're very polite and you might get two or three questions, usually quite innocent questions, but we mentioned before about questions. And children, I did a series of lectures at the museum this, this last Wednesday as part of the uh, Year of Our Island. And every single child practically wants to ask a question. Sometimes their questions are, my dad knows you. <laughs> or I saw a rocket launch. But most of them, they use really fascinating questions like how big's the universe and uh, why is Pluto not a planet anymore and why why are we going to Mars? Why don't we go to Venus? And there's hundreds and hundreds of questions. They just want to know. Children, they love dinosaurs. They love space. They love the whole host of things they love. And they always come back to them. And if you can get a child and inspire them at an early age... You will, that will live with them forever. It did with me. I admit, freely admit it when I went to college and all the rest. I also I forgot my astronomy, but it went to the back seat, didn't it? But then I came back to the island and I started teaching at the college. And now, you know, it, 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 I just love talking about it. And that's, as you can gather from our conversation this well, afternoon. Well, you're clearly very passionate about it, which is a fantastic thing. I'm intrigued to know what um, sort of astronomical development has excited you more than any in your lifetime. The most fascinating, it's a fantastic story. The story of the Hubble Space Telescope has got to be the most amazing story, never mind that it's science and it's astronomy. You've got a guy working in an observatory who discovered that the Milky Way is not the only galaxy, but he discovered Andromeda is another galaxy. So the universe grew from one galaxy to two, and now to billions and billions of them. The Hubble Space Telescope is named after him. They launched it in 1990, and it was wrong. It had been made perfectly, perfectly wrong. Biggest embarrassment out, but drama of dramas, they sent the Space Shuttle crew up and they fixed it. The launch of the Space Shuttle crew that fixed the Hubble Space Telescope, it wasn't a rescue mission, it was a servicing mission. Even NASA would not admit, but it was the biggest rescue mission, even bigger than Apollo 13. Because if that had been a failure, there would have been so much egg on the face, budgets would have been pulled and all the rest. But since then, the Hubble Space Telescope has just produced so many surprises, oh so many results, so many fantastic pictures. It's brought astronomy to the man in the street. And I finished my Hubble lecture with just a series of photographs of, from the Hubble Space Telescope. And everyone just looks at them and goes, wow. It's like that, that one they produced, wasn't it, from the Hubble Space Telescope, the, the world's biggest picture, which is it just shows that how tiny we are oh, in yeah. the middle of everything. Absolutely. And NASA's very generous with the material. Oh, everything they have free, is, isn't it? is free. Everything is, is copyright free, so you can use those pictures on any website, any lecture, anything you want. And uh, you just never cease to amaze me. Only the other day, I mentioned this about this galaxy they discovered that's only 500 million years after the Big Bang, and that's, that might not seem a lot to people, but that's a huge discovery. And what has been for you uh, the most magic moment in your career? What really has excited you? Yeah, astronomically. Speaking, I can't give you one, I'm afraid. I'd have to give you about half a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> if you push me for one, I would say seeing the majesty of a total solar eclipse. In 2006, four of us from the island went across the society. Uh, four of us went to Turkey to see a total eclipse. 
I talk about astronomy like this to anybody all the time. They used to have to throw things at me to shut me up. But during the middle of a total solar eclipse, I was speechless. It is just, even now thinking about it, it's awe-inspiring. And I was very, very fortunate. I didn't take my wife in 2006, and I swore the next time there was an eclipse that was reachable easily, we would go and see it. And we came back, we went to, we took the, the, the family, all the grandchildren, everyone else to Florida. They all thought we had a family holiday in Florida. The real reason was my wife and I went to see the eclipse in America, in North Carolina, after we'd had the family holiday in Orlando. And again, the eclipse was just breathtaking. It's the most amazing sight you'll ever see. Well, it's one thing that I'm assuming then you would recommend everyone to do. Definitely. So there you go. If, that's, if that's... ever there's a thing to put on your bucket list, I hate the expression, you've got to. <laughs> but we haven't got long to wait. There is a total eclipse of the sun visible over the Isle of Man. And oh, when is that? When is that? 21.51. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> I don't think we'll be around then. Uh, right, we're going to end with a, a really interesting piece of music right. that you've picked for us uh, that most, a lot of people won't necessarily know. Before we do, uh, it's a, there's a special moon next week. Tell us about it. Yes, indeed. Next, on the 31st of this month, we have a special moon. It's full, it's blue, it's blood red, it's this full snow moon, and it's eclipsed. Oh my All word. All at once. And will we, we be able to see that clearly Absolutely. from the Absolutely, it will be rising. It will not look any different to the moon we normally see. But it's called a blue moon because the second full moon in a month is called a blue moon. It's called the red moon because when it's eclipsed, where they'll see it in places like California, it'll go blood red. The full snow moon is always given to the first full moon after the, f- the first full moon in January because that's when the snows are at their biggest. And I've missed one, haven't I? What was the other one? A blue moon. I mentioned blue, blue moon. Yeah, you said blue moon. So, so we, we can see that, which is absolutely brilliant. Oh, uh, it's a super moon. Sorry, I forgot the super, super moon. moon. It's a super well. moon, which means it's slightly bigger than normal, and which is a load of rubbish, really. But if it makes people look up at it, then I'm all for it. And one more question. Where is the best dark skies place on the island? Because there's lots to choose from. There's lots to choose from. There's a total of 26. They all have their own merits. But for me, the best place to go and do stargazing in the Isle of Man is the car park of the Faultyville Reservoir. Wonderful. You get there, no lights, no nothing. And the sky on a clear night is spectacular. Beautiful location too. Uh, it's been an absolute joy spending this My hour pleasure. with you, Howard. We could have talked about so much more. Uh, but if you have missed uh, the, any part of the show, we're going to put, first of all, a little video clip on the Manx Radio portal later, and you'll be able to go back and listen to this via the podcast as well. I think it's about time that you introduced your final song and explained it. We're going to have a little really. bit of this, not the whole thing, but what is it? I think not is eight minutes long. Well, I just love progressive rock. And one of my favourite bands of all time was Emerson Lake and Palmer. Keith, uh, um, Greg Lake, of course, is the lead vocalist on this particular track by King Crimson, and it's called Epitaph. Thank you so much, Howard Parkin. Thank you.
Women Today.